good morning. I'm going to move some stuff around so that I'm, I'm like a chronic mover, and so i got to make space here. Um, I was mentioning earlier that I love that, that y'all gather in an elementary school, um, and especially in an elementary school library, because it's the only library in the world where I can reach books on the top shelf. So that's nice. Um, yeah, so for those of you who don't know me, my name's Cole Kirby. Uh, like Paul said, I serve at Sojourn Montrose as a church planting resident, uh, which, which means that I do um, in Montrose what Paul does here, and, and we are preparing to plant a, a new church in an undecided and undisclosed neighborhood. Um, so please be praying for us in that process. Um, yeah, we've been in Houston for four and a half years, have been at Sojourn Montrose for that whole time. And, and it's been really exciting to see that church grow from one that was much smaller than this one now into one that's much larger than this one now. And, and, and Anna and I were, were talking under our breath about how cool it is that y'all still get to have lunch all in one place together after a gathering. Uh, because we did that until restaurants hated us, and then we decided we're going to stop doing that because it's an, over, an overload. Um, but we're going to jump into Galatians. We've got a lot of text to cover. Uh, before we do and, and jump into the Word, I'm going to pray for us again, uh, mainly for me. Uh, so would you join me? Lord, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You didn't have to, but gracefully you've done so. And so I pray this morning that we would approach your word with reverence and humility and that you would reveal yourself to us. I pray that we wouldn't be tempted to parse up your word into to different um, expressions of who you are as if you're a God who changes, but that we would see the, the full scope of who you are, who you have been, and who you will be um, in eternity past and in eternity future. And I pray that this morning we would see that that is all coming to culmination in your Son. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask that your Spirit would move. Amen. So in, in Galatians up to this point, Paul has been making the argument that the gospel is just one gospel, that, that there is nothing that can be added or subtracted or changed in it, that it would still be the gospel. And the gospel is simply this, as Paul is telling the Galatians, that, that Christ has come to save sinners and that in Christ, all of the promises of God for his people can be attained. And the reason Paul is making this argument is because there are Jewish Christians who have come into Galatia and have begun telling the, the Gentile Greek Christians that there are additions that they need to make in their observation and practice of the Christian faith in order to truly be saved, specifically circumcision. The, the Jewish Christians have come in and have told the Gentile Christians that that Jesus is enough if you circumcise your male children. But, but you have to do that. And, and so Paul's whole argument throughout Galatians is, is one for unity between Gentile Christians and Jew, Jewish Christians under the banner that, that there is nothing apart from faith in Christ. And, and so in this text that we're in today, Paul is, Paul is making that argument by connecting the promise that was made to Abraham at the very beginning 
uh, of the people of Israel, with the father of the nation of Israel. He's connecting the promise made to Abraham, the law given to Moses, and what we have in Christ. And his argument is that, that the promise made to Abraham was not replaced by the law. And, and that Christ coming did not replace the law. But that all throughout history, God has been revealing the same thing over and over and over, more and more and more to his people. He even goes as far in verse 8, which was the text for last week, that foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So Abraham, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born, had the gospel preached to him. And we're so quick to say that the gospel is that Jesus Christ saves sinners. And that is the gospel, but it's only the gospel in as much as that is the way through which the promises made by God are attained. Through faith. And so God made promises to Abraham. And Abraham believed God through faith and received the promise of blessing. And so the gospel from the time of Abraham through the time of Moses when the law was given to the time of Christ has never changed. It's just been made more clear. I, I think that it's helpful to think about two different ways of, uh, of, like, of viewing entertainment. One person might sit down on a Saturday morning and begin by watching their favorite sitcom on Netflix and then, because it's getting closer to fall, they might flip the channel and watch their favorite college football team play. And then when that, that game is over, they might turn Netflix back on and watch a movie. And really what they've done is they've been in the same category of entertainment, but all very distinct and different things. But someone else might sit down and binge watch their favorite show. And in that, what they have is a consistent story, slowly, episode by episode, being revealed more and more clearly until the characters are understood more, the plot is understood more, what the director wanted the viewers to experience is understood more. And we're often tempted when we think about the Bible to think that now that Jesus has come, the things that happened in the Old Testament just don't matter anymore. But actually, the opposite is true. Jesus' coming matters precisely because of what happened in the Old Testament. So let's read Galatians 3, verse 15 through 18. To give a human examples, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promise is made to Abraham and to his offspring... It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So verse 15, Paul begins with an example. And the word we have is, is a man-made covenant. But what he's talking about 
is a testamentary will, a will that someone would write before they die about where their property would go, who would inherit it. And, and so if a man writes a will, having a poor daughter and a rich daughter, and he writes in his will that the majority of his wealth when he dies will go to the poor daughter. And the day after he dies, the rich daughter loses all of her wealth. The will doesn't change. Though the circumstances have changed, the will doesn't change. The originally poor daughter would still inherit most of the wealth. And so what Paul is saying is that is that just because God gave the law to Moses doesn't mean the promise he made to Abraham is no longer the promise through which blessing will be received. The promise made to Abraham was this, that God said, I will make you through your offspring into a great nation, and I will bless you, and you will bless all the nations of the earth. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And even more, I will give to you the land of your sojourning, meaning the land that you have been traveling for, that you've been removed from, a land of rest and of prosperity. And I will give you countless offspring, more than you can count. And if we read in the early chapters in Exodus, we will see that God makes almost the exact same promise, word for word, to Moses. The consistency of God's promise to his people hasn't changed. Then we can consider the context that the law was given in. If we're asking the question, why did the law come? Well, let's read verses 19 through 24. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that would give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified through faith. So the context that the law was given to Moses is this. The people of Israel for generations had been enslaved in Egypt. And God worked miracles and used Moses, his servant, to see them released from slavery. And he promised them that they would go and enter into a promised land of rest, flowing with milk and honey. God had blessed them and had them well on their way to being this great nation who would bless all the other nations of the earth. But the people of Israel were very rebellious, and they consistently worshiped gods that were not their God. And they consistently treated other nations harshly, and even treated their own people harshly. And so God gave the law 
But God didn't give the law and say, those promises that I made that I would bless you through faith, I'm now going to give you this law, and if you're not perfect, then I'm not going to give you those promises. He gave the law, adding it to the promises. And it's often the question for us, even as Christians, why is there this law? We can get so hung up on it. Why did God give so many commandments? Why are there such strict rules for the people of God if we talk about freedom in Christ? What is the purpose of it? Verse 19 tells us the law became, came because of transgression or because of sin. And it imprisoned people. So the law came because of sin, meaning that that God wanted the people of Israel to be blessed by him. And And he wanted the people of Israel to bless all the other nations of the earth. But in their rebellion, they could do neither. In their rebellion against God and his goodness, the people of Israel could not receive the blessings of God in relationship with him because they consistently turned from relationship with him. In disobeying and being rebellious to God, they couldn't bless the other nations of the earth because they were too caught up on themselves to bless others. And so the law was given to show Israel the perfection of God and what this great nation would truly look like that would experience the blessings of God and that would bless others. Paul tells us that that imprisoned the people of Israel. What does that mean, that the law imprisoned or held captive the people of Israel? Well, if we look at the law in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, what we will see are intricate sacrificial systems, which means that every time that sin was committed, a bull or a goat or a dove had to be killed. And they had to go to a high priest and and have the high priest intercede for them for their forgiveness, for a temporary pardon for their sin. And, And so the demands of the law being so rigorous and being so impossible to obey fully meant that the people of Israel were constantly in this cycle of disobedience and sacrifice, disobedience and sacrifice. And under that system, there is not freedom. And God didn't do this to be cruel. Verse 24 tells us that the law was a guardian until Christ came. That word in Greek for guardian translates better into what we would think of as tutor or coach or some sort of moral caretaker. A guardian is for for someone or a group of people who have not yet reached full maturity. When I think about that, I think about playing baseball as a, as a young child. I have always loved baseball, and I always played it growing up at any opportunity that I could. And I remember in elementary school, there came a time when I realized that the ball is hard, and it really hurts when it hits me. And, and so there was a time in my, my short-lived baseball career as a young child that I was afraid of the ball. Everybody's afraid of But I was really afraid of the ball. And I was so afraid of the ball that if a ground ball was hit to me pretty hard, I I wouldn't stay in front of it, but I would step to the side and field it next to my feet. 
And I remember a practice in particular where my coach noticed that I was afraid of the ball. And so he just hit me ground balls over and over and over again. Let's try again. Let's try again. Let's try again. He wasn't doing that to be cruel. He was doing that because he knew what was best for me as a baseball player, what was best for our team with me playing that position. And he was doing that to show me the standard of perfection in baseball. I, he didn't do that because he thought I would become perfect. He didn't think I was going to become the greatest and most perfect baseball player in the history of the world, but he did it for my good. And so the law served the people of Israel, constantly showing them through the sacrificial system, let's try again, let's try again, let's try again. And the purpose that that served was that over time, the people of Israel more and more and more realized their need for something more permanent than the blood of bulls and goats. And their need for a perfection that they couldn't provide on their own. The law was setting the table for the promise made to Abraham to come to fruition in Christ. The law was making the people of Israel ready and desirous of a Messiah who could release them from this burden. Verse 24 says that the law was our guardian until Christ came. Meaning that the law no longer stands over the people of God with a let's try again, let's try again, let's try again. Go back to the sacrifices, go back to the priest. It no longer serves as a guardian because of Christ's coming. The question is, is why is that? Because we know that when Jesus came, he upheld the law. And he taught that the law was good and that it should be observed in total. And so Jesus didn't come and say, well, now that I'm here, the law isn't important. Or now that I'm here, you don't need the law. Jesus came showing that, that the law that you tried so hard to observe was never intended to save you. But it was only intended to show you your need for me. If we look at the three portions of the law and see how Jesus fulfilled them, we'll have a better understanding of why the law is still important for us today. The Old Testament law is generally broken up into three main portions. There's the moral law, which most of us are familiar with. This includes the Ten Commandments. This is right behavior. God, God gave the moral law to the people of Israel for their flourishing with one another, for them to have good conscience, and for them to see the character of God. So the moral law says, do not steal, and so... We don't steal. Why? Because when we steal, one, we don't have a clean conscience. Two, we don't flourish well with others because we lose trustworthiness when we steal. And we don't experience and understand the character of God because God is not a thief. The second portion of the law is the civil portion of the law. This was 
essentially the constitution for the nation of Israel under the ruler God himself. How would Israel behave with one another? How would they behave with other nations? This was law uh, that talked about how are we going to approach social justice as the nation of Israel? How are we going to approach criminal justice as the nation of Israel? God gave this so that the Jewish civil government could flourish. And then there's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is primarily made up of the system of sacrifices. That, that bulls and goats and doves would be brought to a high priest who would sacrifice them and, and that through that the people of God would temporarily be cleansed and consecrated unto God as a holy people. And it's important for us to realize that the law doesn't serve as a guardian for us anymore because Christ has come and fulfilled it totally. We can understand the moral fulfillment in Christ easily and how that plays into us because that's something that we talk about a lot as the church. We talk about how Christ was sinless and he served people well and loved people perfectly and worshiped the Lord perfectly. And we know that that in his death on the cross, that he took on our sins morally and gave us his righteousness and gave us his spirit so that now we can obey and be good morally, not so that God will love us, but because God has loved us. But how does Christ fulfill the civil law and why don't we still observe the civil law of God? Well, First, we don't still observe the civil law of God because there is no longer a Jewish civil government. And that's what the civil law of God was written for. There is a nation called Israel, but the nation of Israel is no longer a Jewish civil government. It's a nation state. The true Israel are the sons of Abraham through faith in Christ, which is the global church. And as a global church made up of many nations in many different governments, we don't have a civil law. But we also see Christ fulfilling the civil law as part of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David is that there would one day be a perfect king for the people of Israel who would rule with justice and honor and dignity and love, and that king is Christ. And so we have no need for the civil law of God because as the people of God, as the global church observing the moral law by the power of the Spirit through the righteousness of Christ with a perfect king in Jesus, we see that law fulfilled. And then there's the ceremonial law. Why don't we, when we fail, have to go back for more sacrifice? Because Christ has served as a perfect sacrifice. Christ served as a perfect sacrifice in ways that bulls and goats and doves could not for a lot of reasons. One, Christ was human and bulls and goats and doves are not. They couldn't truly intercede for human sin. They were a placeholder at best. Christ could stand in as the perfect sacrifice because he is the God of the universe. And offering himself for his people is the most powerful way in which his people could be pardoned. 
he serves as a perfect sacrifice. Because as we read last week in Galatians, in the first part of chapter 3, that Christ became a curse for a cursed people. And he also serves as a perfect fulfillment of the ceremonial law because no longer do we have to rely on a morally imperfect high priest to intercede for us, but we have the resurrected God of the universe interceding for us day and night, moment by moment, year by year, decade by decade in the throne room of God the Father as the risen Lord Jesus as our perfect high priest. If we read Hebrews, that's the beautiful story that will be told to us is that we have a perfect high priest in Jesus and so it is much better than the old ceremonial system. It is permanent and lasting and true. We can draw near to the throne of grace in a time of need because we have a perfect high priest who was a perfect sacrifice, who intercedes for us and gives his spirit to us that we might obey. So Christ has fulfilled fully the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And because of Christ, though the law still stands, it no longer enslaves us to its demands. We are now free through the work of Christ to obey and to experience the fullness of the blessings of God with confidence and joy. Here, verses 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is one of the most beautiful texts in the whole New Testament as Paul breaks down any sort of societal divides. Jew and Greek. Through faith in Christ, because the law no longer enslaves us, there is equity between culturally Jewish Christians and culturally Gentile Christians because they are all saved by the same faith in Christ who fulfilled the law for them. There's neither slave nor free because there's full freedom and eternal freedom in Christ. There's neither male nor female because in Christ any walls of hostility or prejudice or oppression have been broken down. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying, just as an aside, that there is truly no racial groups or ethnic groups or gender groups. That is certainly not what he's saying. If we read all of Paul's works, we will see over and over again that he affirms that there are male and female and that they're both equal, good, and different. So that's not what he's saying. He's saying that there's no difference in the amount of blessing they can receive from God because of their social station. But there is the fullness of blessing for all of God's sons and daughters through faith in Christ, apart from works of the law. The coming of Christ breaks down 
ethnic, gender, and socioeconomic lines for the sake of freedom in God's promises. Faith in Christ means that there are no cultural or national requirements like circumcision or dietary restrictions or certain ways of dressing that will prevent someone from becoming a child of God. He finishes with verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so Paul brings it full circle saying, saying through Christ, you experience the promise given to Abraham. That Christ was plan A from the beginning. He didn't make a promise to Abraham, get frustrated with the people, give them the law, and then decide this law is too hard, I guess I'll have to bring them Christ. No, he made a promise to Abraham with the fulfillment of Christ in mind. He gave the law with the fulfillment of Christ in mind. And knowing the rigors and the restrictions and the righteousness required in the law makes the work of Christ all the sweeter for the people of God. Because we know all the more how imperfect we are. We know all the more our deep need for Christ. We're broken down of any sense of pride that says, I could do it on my own. And so so from God promising to Eve in the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis that he would crush the serpent's head through her offspring to promising Abraham that through one of his offspring would all the nations of the earth be blessed, to to giving this restrictive and difficult law to Moses and the people of Israel. It was all with Christ in mind that he would come and fulfill all of these promises of God. And so we live in a unique time in history for God's people because we live once Christ has come and revealed himself, so that no longer does the law serve as a guardian for us. No longer do we have to go and experience sacrifice year by year by year. But we have freedom in Christ. But if we think about the promises made to Abraham, we will see that some of them have not yet come to pass in their fullness. God promised Abraham all of these things, and we don't see them happening completely. In Christ's fulfillment of the law, we can receive all the blessings promised to Abraham through faith. We can. That is a promise. We're no longer slaves to the law, but we're sons and daughters of God. And this isn't because the law is bad, but it's because the law was kept. Christ fulfilled the moral law, And because of that, he was able to become a curse on our behalf. Therefore, we can say as the people of God that we are forgiven. Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law of God. Therefore, he was able to cleanse our consciences. Therefore, we can say we are purified and we're holy. So now let's look at the promises made to Abraham and the promises made to the church through John's revelation of what things will be like when Christ returns finally and fully for his people. 
as forgiven and holy, we can truly be God's people and he can be our God. Genesis 17, 8 says to Abraham, I will be their God. Revelation 21, verse 3, speaking of the new heaven, says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. As forgiven and holy, we can now enter into the rest of God in the land that he has promised. A land that is far greater than the shadowy Canaan that was promised to Abraham. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings for an everlasting possession. Revelation 21 verses 10 and verse 25 say this, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. That is a true land of rest for the people of God. In Jesus' resurrection and his headship over the church, we have an everlasting king for this clarified understanding of the people of Israel as those who trust in God through faith. A people made up of many nations. Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Revelation 19 says this, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war like a king. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, like a king. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The true offspring of Abraham are determined by faith in Christ. And that number was promised to Abraham to be one too great to number. And because Jesus has fulfilled the moral, civil, and ceremonial aspects of the law of God, he is able to now bless all of the nations of the earth through a people who he gives that righteousness to, which is the church. Genesis 15 verse 5 says, look toward heaven. And number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Revelation verse 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Because Christ has fulfilled the law, we as the church can be a great nation because we have a perfect king who has given his very spirit to us to empower us to do the good works he has for us. Because Christ has fulfilled the law, we get to experience relationship with God as he is now truly our God. As righteous and holy through faith in him, 
God has called us sons and daughters, not subjects or enemies. Because Christ is our good king, we as the global church can be a holy people that bless all the nations of the earth by showing them that there is not cultural standard or list of practices that must be met to be blessed by the God of the universe. There is only faith in Christ as Lord, as Savior, as King, and as friend. And because Christ is our King who has fulfilled the law totally, we can rest assured knowing that we will obtain the promised land that we read about in Revelation of rest and provision when he returns and establishes his heavenly kingdom totally. So, by the power of the Spirit, as sons and daughters of the glorious God of all things, let us obey the good and true law of Christ. That we would love the Lord our God with all that we have and that we would love our neighbor as ourself. We don't do this because we have to do it or so that God will love us, but we do it because God has already done it for us perfectly and has already loved us perfectly in Christ. We do this because in it we experience the fullness of God's blessing on our lives as we experience him relationally as a father and as we bless the world around us with his love and his grace. We are no longer slaves, church, to a list of demands or systems, but we are free free to obey with reckless abandon for the purpose of making our great king known. We do all of this only through faith in Christ, not by our own will or power or strength, because the law serves to show us that we can't do it by our own will, power, or strength. The promises made to Abraham truly were the gospel. And the promises made to Abraham, we have seen how they will be completed finally and fully by our King Jesus when he returns. But we have a glorious opportunity of living in the already but not yet of those fulfillments. So let us walk as a people who have a good king and a good father, obedient and joyful and confident and bold, that through the people of God, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, including the Galleria neighborhood of Houston, Texas. Be that people, because Christ has been that for you. Let's pray. Lord, your word is very good. And we ask that by your spirit, it would take root in our hearts. I pray that by your spirit, we would be a people who love your law and obey it, not out of duty, but out of joy, and that all the more and more in our failures and in our success, we would look to you, King Jesus, as our only hope, and that we would make that hope known to all we encounter, because it is not on only our only hope, but you are the only hope of all the world. So be made known by the power of your spirit through your people. In Jesus' name we pray.